Okay, how many have heard of Winston Churchill? Okay, he was a famous prime minister of uh, Great Britain during World War II, and uh, he came into power right at the beginning of the war when it looked really dark for the United Kingdom. Um, it's like if they were losing every battle, it looks like they were going to be invaded by Hitler's armies, and it just looked really bad. But he came on the scene, and he inspired an entire nation not to give up, not to get discouraged, to keep fighting, keep going. You know, his famous speech, we'll fight on the beaches, we'll fight in the hills, we'll, you know, he just inspired a nation, and he became a very famous man. And after World War II, he was a sought-after speaker, and he was invited to the graduation ceremony of his own old school, and so he went there, and the time came for him to get up and, and give his speech, and he gets up, and he looks out over the audience, and he kind of says in the gruff voice that he was famous for, never, 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 never give up, and then he sat down, that was it, and they thought that they thought that's a bit of a short speech. And then the penny dropped. They realized that he didn't need to give a long speech because that was the secret of his life. He's a man that never gave up. When the odds were against him, when everything, all the news was bad, all the battles were being lost, he never gave up. And he inspired a whole nation to never give up. You may not get to inspire a nation, but I want to tell you, if you have a tenacity of faith where you don't give up, you're going to inspire some people around you to get on your coattails and run that race with you and never give up. We're meant to encourage one another. It's not a solo race we're running. We're running this thing together. We're a team. We're a kingdom of God team. And we encourage one another and cheer one another on. Never give up. That was the secret of a great man. And we've got to learn that lesson that anything great in God, whether it's in church or business or sport or marriage or art or music or whatever it is, is only accomplished by people that never give up. The first man to fly solo across the United States crashed 86 times. And he just kept, he kept, he kept rebuilding his plane. He kept buying a new plane until he finally did it, 86 times. I might have given up after 10 or 5, I don't know. Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, he tried 10,000 experiments before he discovered a substance, a filament, that when you passed a current through it, it wouldn't actually just burn out, but it would just keep glowing and not burn out. 10,000 experiments. A reporter asked him after about 2,000 failures, he, he said, Mr. Edison, aren't you discouraged that you've had 2,000 failures? He said, not at all. That's 2,000 things I can cross off my list. Wow, talk about a positive attitude. Ernest Malinowski, I bet you no one's ever heard of him. He was a civil engineer, and he wanted to build a railroad through the Andes Mountains. And they said, you can't do it. There's too many mountains, valleys, rivers. You, you'll never be able to build a railroad through the Andes Mountains. Well, he started in the 1880s and 62 tunnels. 30 bridges, and two revolutions later, it was finished. That's tenacity. That's perseverance. You see, it's easy to start well. It's not so easy to finish well. The Bible doesn't say that he or she who starts well shall be saved. It says, he or she who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the tough bit. 
You know, that is the tough bit. You, you know, I, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he's my age, and we've been around a while, and he was just saying, man, you know, so many of the people that started out with us aren't around today. They're not, they're not serving God. They got disillusioned, they got disappointed, they got offended, they got something or other, and, and they just gave up. Well, here's what the Bible says, Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. It says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what He's promised. You know what? God, God wants you and me to receive what He's promised. He's a good Father. He's a kind Father. He's a generous Father. The Word of God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, He's got plans for us to give us a future and a hope, plans that are good, plans for our welfare. He's a kind God. He's a good God. Jesus is a wonderful Savior, a great shepherd. He wants to do His good. But listen, He's not Father Christmas. He's not just going to hand out lollies all the time. He's Father God, and He's really interested that not only do you get His goodies, but you get a godly character along the way, because ultimately when you get into heaven, it's going to be your character that will determine the level of reward you get in eternity. God is so committed to making you like His Son that He'll actually withhold an answer to prayer and make you wait for it to teach you patience and perseverance because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And yet we've got a growing microwave generation of Christians that if it doesn't all happen in five seconds, they give up and get discouraged. If God doesn't answer your prayer in a day, you walk away. If something happens that you don't like, you get offended and you leave the church or you leave your faith. That is not the sort of church Jesus Christ died for. He went the whole way. He carried a cross on his back. He walked through Jerusalem. He was spat on. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He went the whole way. That's what Greta is saying. Fix your eyes on him. Why? Because he went the whole way, and he's wanting his church to be runners that go the whole way. The devil wants us to wimp out. You know what? God wants to make us not warriors, but warriors. Not victims, but victors. And I've found that often prior to a breakthrough, we're tempted to give up the most. It's almost like the breakthroughs around the corner, and somehow the devil senses that, and he will go over time working to discourage us. It's like all hell breaks loose before you get a breakthrough. It's designed to stop you in your tracks, give up, make you walk away. He does not want to see you get that breakthrough because that breakthrough can lead to something great in God. That breakthrough can lead you to be a more effective Christian that can touch many, many lives. I love the story in the Bible, um, in the book of Acts, about Saul. Saul was a, a Jewish believer, um, but he hated Christians. Like, he just watched this phenomenon of, of this Christianity exploding in Jerusalem and in Israel. And uh, he got so angry about these Christians, and he, and he, uh, he cheered when they were being stoned to death, and, he, and he, he went around arresting these Christians and throwing them into prison, and, and then one day he decided he wanted to go to the city of Damascus in the north in Syria, 
And, and he was going there to find Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem and throw them into prison. And, and then he has this encounter with Jesus and he sees a bright light, shy, brighter than the sun. And he's thrown off his horse and he's blinded. And, and he says, who are you, Lord? And he, Jesus says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. You know, people at governments around the world that persecute Christians, they don't realize they are persecuting Jesus. And they're going to have to answer on judgment day for what they're doing. And we have to pray God has mercy on those governments. God has mercy on those nations. You know, the fastest growing church in the world today, it's in Iran. Iran's the most wicked, it's got the most wicked government of virtually any government on the planet. They hate Christians, they hate Israel, want to wipe it off the map. They just, they are just against everybody. And yet, you know what? God's saving one to two million people in Iran. One to two million have come to Christ, and it's just exploding. You can never outdo God. God's, God's, God's after the souls. He was a persecutor, and then he got saved. And uh, Jesus said, okay, go into Damascus and wait, and I'm going to send you somebody. And so he goes in, he's blind, and he waits. He's fast and prays for three days. That's a word for somebody here. You know, there's power in three-day fasts to get incredible breakthroughs. You, Ezra fasted and prayed three days on his way back to Jerusalem to, to uh, you know, bring uh, the treasures back to that city. Uh, Paul fasts and prays for three days to get direction. And Esther fasted and prayed for three days to have deliverance, to get deliverance. There's real power. Some t God's talking to somebody here. When's the last time you gave up a meal for Jesus? When's the last time you didn't eat something, but you prayed through that meal hour? When's the last time you, you extended your prayer times and your fasting times? You do know you're meant to fast and pray, don't you, as Christians? Jesus didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast and when you pray, don't tell anybody, but just do it. And your Father who seeks in secret will reward you. The Bible says if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. If God's a bit distant tonight, when's the last time you've drawn near to him? When did you last, ex I don't know, this is not on my notes, but God's challenge, when's the last time you extended yourself and you went beyond where you currently are and you sacrificed something? Maybe you need to fast social media. Do something, but allow yourself to pray. That's a word for somebody. So he's fasting and praying three days. A guy called Ananias comes in, prays for him. He gets his healing back. He gets baptized in water. He gets filled with the Spirit, and he becomes a red-hot preacher of the gospel, and he starts preaching about this Jesus that he once hated, and now he loves Jesus, and he's telling everybody he possibly can in Damascus about Jesus, and it just says in uh, Acts 9, 22 to 25, Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And after a while, the Jewish leaders decided to kill him. But Saul was told about their plot and that they were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. So during the night, some of the other believers let him down in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. Couldn't get a photo. That's the best I could do. And so these guys got this big basket. They tie a rope. They dangle it over the wall. These walls are high. You fall from it, you could die. You could be crippled. And they put, put, put Saul in the, in the basket. And they, there's three or four of them. They're letting out the rope slowly because it's the pitch dark, and they're letting out the rope slowly through their hands, and then they hear the sound of a sentry making his rounds. 
they stop. They're holding onto the rope, burning their hands. Saul's thinking, what's going on up there? I'm just dangling halfway between heaven and earth. And they have to wait, and they're holding on minutes and minutes and minutes, and finally the sentry wanders off, and they start letting out the rope again. And then, darn it, they hear another sentry coming along the path, and they have to stop again, and they're holding on and holding on. By now, their hands are red and pained because they've been holding on to this rope, and, and, and they just keep holding on. And it could have been tempted to just let the rope go and run away. Because they didn't know who this guy saw was anyway. You know, some hothead preacher that's come on the scene. But they held on. The sentry went away and they kept letting out the rope. Finally it went slack as the basket touched the ground and Paul hopped out and ran away. And you know what? When they were holding on to the rope, they didn't know who they had in their basket. They didn't know that Saul, who once persecuted the church, would become Paul, the great apostle, one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. He wrote more than half the New Testament, from Romans to 2 Timothy. He wrote it all. When you read that, you're reading what he wrote. He saw hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ in Asia Minor and Europe. He turned the world upside down. We are still preaching from the stuff he wrote. He had amazing revelation of God. He had amazing things. He, he was the, one of the most incredible Christians that ever lived. But when those guys were holding on to the basket, they didn't know that. They thought, this is just some hot-haired preacher. We don't know, you know who he is but we're going to hold on for him. You don't know what or who's in your basket. That miracle you need, you don't know what that could lead to. That breakthrough you need, you don't know what that could lead to. That person you're praying for who needs to come to faith in Christ or receive a healing, you don't know what repercussions that could have when the breakthrough comes or when their salvation comes. But I'm here to tell you, it's worth holding on to the rope of your basket because at some point, your basket's gonna touch the ground. At some point, your answer's gonna come. At some point, that miracle's going to happen because God is faithful. I feel there's one area especially that the Holy Spirit is saying strongly to hold on for, and that is the basket of salvation. That is people in your basket who don't yet know Jesus. Could be a family member, could be a friend, could be a workmate, someone you care about, and they don't yet know Jesus. We must carry them in faith and believe for their salvation no matter how hard it looks. My first wife, Jane, passed away back in 2007, and a couple of months after she died, uh, Greta's first husband, Ron, passed away, sudden heart attack. Jane had had multiple sclerosis, been in a wheelchair for 21 years, and I'd hoped for a miracle of healing. I prayed for that, but it never happened. She got promoted to heaven instead. And you know what? I made a decision when that happened. I wasn't going to get angry at God. I wasn't going to get offended at God just because he hadn't answered my prayer the way I wanted it to be answered. You know, sometimes I think what destroys faith is that we ask God to do something a certain way, and then he does it a different way, and we can't handle that, and we get offended, and we walk away from God. You know, God is God. 
I, I, I don't think Jane and Ron are walking around heaven saying, oh man, I wish we'd been healed on earth. They're thinking, wow, this is incredible. Look at the streets of gold. Look at the throne of God. Look at the mansions of the... Oh, there's Paul. Oh my goodness, there's Isaiah. Oh, there's Adam and Eve. Oh my... And you know, it's just like it goes on and on and on. They're not walking around heaven feeling sadness that they didn't get healed on earth and we just got to celebrate with them. But anyway, they died and they went to heaven. And how do I know they're in heaven? Because of what the Word of God tells me. Listen to this from the Bible, 1 John 5, 11 to 13. This is the testimony. In other words, this is the truth. That's what John's really saying. This is the truth. God has given us eternal life. It means we're going to live forever. And we either live forever in hell or we live forever in heaven. You get two choices. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, Jesus. He or she who has the Son has life. He or she who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. His name is Jesus, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. You can know. Why? Because you're perfect? No. Nobody in this room is perfect. Why? Because you're sinless? No. Nobody in this room is sinless. I'll tell you why. Because when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you believe He died on a cross for you, shed his blood for your sin to be forgiven and you invite him into your life and you turn from that sin and you turn to him. Say, Jesus, come and take control. You know what? He washes you from your sin. He cleanses you in God his Father's sight and he sees you. God sees you as perfect in Christ. And because you have Jesus, you have everlasting life. Now, that's not an excuse because I have Jesus. I can go out and sleep around and have sexual intercourse with whoever I want to and, and watch pornography and, and get drunk and do drugs. No, 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 because uh, somebody really born again doesn't do that stuff. Somebody really, gone really quiet in the room. You know you're not meant to do that, right? You know you're not meant to commit that rubbish because it'll destroy you. And the only reason God says don't do it is because he loves you and he knows if you do do it, it'll wreck your life. And he knows that if you follow Jesus and follow his way, your life will be blessed. And not only that, he said, well, you know, because the thing of, some of us will think, like, that's pretty hard not to do. No, no, he gives you the Holy Spirit, who's your friend, who's your helper, who empowers you to live victoriously. And even when you stumble and fall, he says, come on, get up, ask my forgiveness, get up and keep going. When a runner runs a race, how many have watched races where the runner's fallen? And don't we admire the runners that get up and keep going? You might have fallen and stumbled into sin. You might have fallen. But I want to tell you, God is not going to wipe you out. God is waiting for you to turn again, waiting you to say, Lord, I'm sorry, I messed that up. And he's wanting you to get back in the race again. They that have the Son have life. They who don't have the Son don't have life. And that's why we need to hold on to the basket of salvation for our friends and family and people in our lives that aren't yet saved because we don't want to see them perish and neither does God. You say, well, how do, does God just save them by magic? No, no, He saves them because of us. You know, Paul, we talked about before, he, he went preaching and one day he went to a city in Greece he didn't find too many people that were open to God, but he found a few ladies down by the river and he began to preach them. And it just says in Acts 16, 14, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. 
I think that's amazing. You know, you're in the kingdom of God. You know why? Because God opened your heart. Yes, somebody loved you. Somebody shared Jesus with you. Maybe somebody invited you to church, but it was God that opened your heart. God that did it. And that friend of yours, that family member of yours that doesn't yet know Jesus, you know what? You will never force their heart open. But you know what you can do? You can pray for them. You can love them. You can share the gospel with them as God gives you opportunity. And you know what? He's the one that will open their heart. I was a secondary school teacher um, way back uh, in a town called Blenheim at the top of the South Island, and, and just a few miles north of Blenheim is a little town called Picton, and Jane and I planted a church there, and uh, so I was teaching and also pastoring at the same time, and after a couple of years, the church grew, and so the elders said, look, would you go full time? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. So I had to tell all my classes um, that I wouldn't be coming back the following year. And, and I just did that, and, and I said my goodbyes, and off I went. Ten years later, I got a letter from one of my former pupils, and this is what it says. There's a letter there. It says, Dear Mr. Peters, you may remember me as a pupil of yours at Marlborough Boys College, and I'm writing to tell you I'm now a Christian. My memory recalls me wondering what gives someone so much courage to stand at the head of a class of rowdy schoolboys and say that he's leaving to become a pastor of the Elam Church. The Lord never gave me any peace from that day on until nine weeks ago when I asked him into my life. I admired you for telling us all, and although I didn't really understand, I knew that what you were doing you felt strongly about, and, and I did realize it was for Jesus Christ. Now I understand totally. I had to tell you of my new life, as you were the first of many to tell me about the Lord, even with those few words that day at school. I'm getting married in three and a half weeks. My fiance asked the Lord into her life the day after I did. Wow. A simple, I never even preached the gospel. I just said, guys, I won't be back next year. I'm going to pastor a church. That's all I said. And God could use that to give him no peace and no rest. Wow. It's worth praying for your family. It's, when you pray, this is the stuff God does. Somebody must have been praying for that guy. When you start praying fervently, like every week, or I, I don't know if you pray every day, but at least once a week, you pray for the people in your lives that don't yet know Jesus. I tell you, something's going to happen. How many have heard of a man called George Muller? George Muller was a man that lived in Victorian England. He was really concerned about orphans. Children on the street. There were no orphanages back then, and these kids were having to live on the streets, and they were being exploited as child labor. It was terrible. So he, he and his wife set up orphanages in the city of Bristol and other cities in England, and he ended up looking after 10,000 orphan children, training them and releasing them into the workforce, set up schools that looked after 100,000 kids educated 100,000. He was like when he died, over 100,000 people came to his funeral. They had to hold it in the streets. He was so famous in England. But you know what? He's a preacher as well. And one day, because he, 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 he knew the heaven and hell thing, he got really concerned about five of his friends that didn't know Jesus. He said, I'm going to start praying for them, and I'm not going to give up. So he started praying for his five friends. I don't know how much he prayed, whether it was once a week or many times a week, but he just kept praying for his friends. Well, after a couple of months, one of them got saved. 
He was excited about that, and he kept praying for the other four. And after 10 years of praying, another two got saved. So there's three that are now in the kingdom, and he's only, there's two holding out. So he prays another 15 years, 25 years in total, and guess what? Number four comes to Jesus. So there's only one to go. The one is holding out. So Muller's prayed 25 years for number five. Well, he keeps praying, and he prays another 27 years, 52 years in total, and then Muller dies. Doesn't ever see his friends saved. And then a couple of weeks after his funeral, number five gives his life to Jesus. Prayed 52 years for the salvation of his five friends. Greta prayed 36 years for the salvation of a brother. I hope it doesn't take that long for your family member. But here's the point. Some people you pray for, they'll come real quick to the Lord. Some people you pray for, it'll take them a few years. Others you pray for, it might take a few decades. And some you pray for, you may not even see it in your lifetime. But I tell you what, you'll see it from heaven. Because the fervent prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Got to hold on. Got to hold on to faith, hold on to God's word. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want to be strong in faith, be strong in your reading of the scriptures. If you are weak in your Bible reading, you will be weak in faith. If you are weak in prayer, you will be weak in faith. I find when I go to prayer, God starts downloading the Word, downloading Scriptures I've read. He inspires me to pray, and He inspires faith within me. If I, if I don't pray for a little bit, I just start feeling weak. If I don't read my Bible for a little bit, I start feeling weak. Now, you know, we need to get back to the Word, and we need to get back to prayer, and we need to be diligent, and there's great applications available that can help you do do a reading every day and get yourself through the Bible in a year. You can do all that kind of stuff. But here's it to say, I think the Holy Spirit needs to release some fire in this place tonight. Fire of faith, fire of commitment. Come on, you are not on a cruise ship to eternity. You are not eating endless buffets while people are going to hell. You're on a battleship. God's enlisted you. You're a soldier. You're a warrior. And you're going to have to see people saved and come into the kingdom of God. And that takes discipline and that takes commitment because you're running a race and you're fighting a battle. It's not a giant holiday yet. It will be in heaven. I'm looking forward to that day. But right now, it's not holiday time. It is time to be alert. It's time to be on guard. It's time to be committed to the Word, committed to prayer, committed to Jesus. And a famous Christian once said, when I look at the world, I get distressed. When I look at myself, I get depressed. But when I look at Jesus, I find rest. And we've got to look up. 